Hello, and welcome to episode number 360 of the Armin Show podcast, Science, People, Creativity, Learning More. We are trying to understand the world in different ways, connecting through people and very people-oriented. On this episode here, we have a professor, an author, the author of this book. We'll come back to that in a second. We have a professor, Jennifer Jacquet, or if it was in French, I looked it up online, Jacquet, in that way. She is professor at of uh, Environmental Studies at NYU, Director of XE Experimental Humanities and Social Engagement, and joins us on this episode. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to have you, and I've checked a variety of your material across uh, content, books, shaming books, videos, um, fishing, uh, conservation, climate change, animals. There's a wide variety and very impactful discussions of sorts. The book of yours that has come out recently is called The Playbook, How to Deny Science, Sell Lies, and Make a Killing in the Corporate World. And it's very punchy and is greatly described as brilliantly subversive and witty because it has an angle to it and is in the second person. Before we get into the book, how would you describe yourself to a random passerby or what things are important to you? Oh, gosh, random passerby or which city am I in? It might depend on uh, on uh, the context. You are, you are in Washington State for some reason in Seattle. Oh, in Seattle. Okay. I would try not to be too offensive then. Um, so I would describe myself as being interested in power, interested in inequality, interested in uh, the preservation of wild spaces and wild animals. And I would say that um, those those two things really drive all of my work. Makes sense. And it's very obvious through your discussions and such. Now, you are at NYU. In NYU, XE is a different kind of category. What is the XE grouping? Okay. What happens there? Yes. XE is, a, is an interdisciplinary master's program. So it's kind of, um, it, it's very experimental in that it allows students to design their own course of action. And so the, the result is highly individualized, but it also has an emphasis again on experimentalism. So things that may not be traditionally taught or studied in a conventional department. So um, I was recently chosen just last year as the director of that program um, because my work um, well, it, it, because my work is interdisciplinary and um, obviously because I uh, am capable of, of doing administrative things. Um, so it's, uh, it's a great program, though, because for many students, you know, they may have studied uh, something like sociology for an undergraduate degree. And then they may want to do a PhD actually in, in comparative literature. And this allows them to sort of bridge that gap um, to, to, to try to like change fields or draw on two fields um, as, a kind of, uh, as a kind of middle road. Um, so I like, I like that aspect of it. And then uh, many of our students don't, aren't interested in PhDs at all and they want to you know, work in, in social engagement. Um, so we, you know, have courses that they can take in creative writing or um, uh, improvisation or th these kind of, they, they can sort of do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. I've always been fond of the interdisciplinary 
places like the Santa Fe Institute or like what you were yeah. describing, where you combine economics yeah, and then sociology and whatnot, then you suddenly figure things out. You never could. It's kind of like combining parts of our brain we didn't combine before. And then wait a minute, I can use art for that part of design for architecture. And then that helps, I don't know, traffic somehow. So yes. So I, I was always in an interdisciplinary program. I, I, my undergraduate degree was in environmental economics, but it was actually half in environmental studies and half in economics because that field sort of was, was just being born. Um, and so I really appreciate being able to think across, across disciplines. And I think that um, you, you wind up being able to see the values of those, dis those disciplines in various ways. And, um, and as a result of, of having that training, I actually had taught for, for quite a while in the Stern Business School. And that gave me a, a, an advantage, I think, in writing the playbook because I sort of recognize and am, am familiar more with the culture of, of business, the, the kind of justification for things, um, which is what I focus on in the book is, is trying to use, to, to look at the business case for scientific denial. There's a lot of business examples in the book. Also, I like that you brought that up that let's say your field is this field and you have certain rules or things that are uh, cemented in that, but you don't know how it can expand or how really strong they are until you add it to other fields. And then you're saying like, oh, this is like F equals MA and physics is a real baseline that we're going to apply out everywhere. We have some baselines. It's like making it less fragile in a way because you're taking it even further than it was designed for in that space. It's a cool feature. Or realizing maybe that some assumptions in your discipline are more fragile than you appreciated. So, you know, what, if you're in economics, it's once you study anything outside of economics, like biology, you start realizing how a lot of, of economics is actually ideological in nature and not sort of fundamental. Um, it is not it's not like uh, the theory of natural selection. It's a kind of worldview that has been um, that has per been perpetuated through through academia. That's an interesting point, right? If it's so fundamental, then it would remain as a rock. And then if it's not, then you start to see, oh, wait a minute, this was generated by some individuals along the way. It's not really natural. It's more synthetic in a way. Hmm. Yeah, it's based on, on social values more so than any kind of hard rule of nature. That's kind of cool. I like the comparison there. Now, there's a variety of connections here. I'll bring them up during, but some of my... Uh, your content reminds me of certain elements of past individuals I had spoken with, and a couple are in the book quite a bit, which is quite cool to see. I always like that because once you get into a category and then it links and then, oh, wait a minute, there's that. It's, it's nice when you're in the category of sorts. That's just a feature of being well-read, I'm afraid. That right there. And I will not <laughs> leave that category undone. I like reading. Reading is great. This book is punchy and it is great. I have to look up second person because sometimes I forget there is second person in between first and third. And I realized I do a lot of second person over the years when I'm giving like uh, personal development insight or such to people. What caused the bringing forth of this book, which is a, I wouldn't call it a deviation, but a change in direction of presentation from past material, what inspired it? Yeah, so I think you're talking about, um, the, so the general conceit of the book is that it is, um, satirical in a way because I, or at least I take on the perspective of the corporation. It's written from the perspective of a corporate consultant advising the corporation, which is an entity. It could be 
it could be a tobacco company, it could be a fossil fuel company, it could be Tesla, you know, it could, it could be anybody. Um, so it's written from the perspective of a corporate consultants advising on how you can deny scientific knowledge that threatens your, your company. Um, and it's written largely in this kind of advisory, uh, third person, uh, passive voice. And I found that to be sort of, it, it's a heavy tone to use. It's, it's very common in scientific writing so that you're, you're saying um, the corporation um, could be undermined by this form of knowledge. So it should um, consider hiring a PR firm who may, well, anyway, it's, 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 it's very sort of um, technical writing. And again, a lot of passive voice. And I found that to be a little bit grueling. So in the third chapter, I use the second person, the you form, uh, because it is about, it's, it's sort of a tear out from the book, the idea that you could, um, as, a, as, a, as a corporation, tear out chapter three and hand it to uh, an academic expert. So chapter three is about recruiting industry experts from academia. And it's in the U form as a kind of recruitment tool. So are you interested in uh, making a little extra money? Do you have a PhD that you don't feel like is being maximized? Um, and so it's a little bit more like a salesmanship there. And that was purely to break up the what I found to be a, a kind of monotonous tone of the re rest of the book. And, um, and also to get people to really reflect on on that chapter a little bit more because I do think um, that there's a very sinister link to some, if you want to use those terms, and I, I think that's fair, um, between industry and academia that is not fully appreciated, I think, by the public and, and even by many academic university people. So industry is using, you know, capitalizing on the brands of, of universities because they are the um, they have protected knowledge for a long time. They have the mission of of generating knowledge, and they are seen. University experts are still seen as sort of the most trusted voices by the public, and so industry has infiltrated that system um, to a large extent. And they're using um, university academics. They're they're paying them enormous amounts of money in some cases to really be the, the spokesperson for, for a company um, and a, a, the first line of defense against um, independent scientific knowledge. And I'm happy to provide examples of that um, if, if it's unclear. Fair point. It, it's quite punchy, but it's not punchy compared to what actually occurs. So is that punchy in a way? I wouldn't say so. Yeah. If that's actually happening in some room right now somewhere, then it's more reality than it is punchy. And also there's so many routes. That's one thing that came up with, uh, from reading the book, there's like 94 routes to go to cover up your doing in so many angles. So I like that element that you broke down and I have to point out this is the first time in the book I've seen detailed contents and cool sections with subsections. I always look at the parts of a book because I always like books in that way. And I don't think I've ever seen it before. So for anybody who would read this, there's detailed subsections on every chapter, which takes you through the whole book. I don't know why I've never seen it before, but maybe detailed contents will start showing up in books. What caused this idea? That is a really great question, Armin. Um, so I have a friend, D.A. Wallach, to thank for that because he's, he's mentioned to me, we were at, at an event together and he was saying, 
you know, I really um, wish more books had detailed tables of contents. I, I just want to read that part to decide whether or not to spend all of my time on the rest of the book. So the book is is actually a kind of funnel. It starts with a, a regular table of contents with the 10 chapters. Then it has the detailed table of contents. I had to fight with the editors a little bit to include both of those. And then it goes into the, the individual chapters. And the idea was just that um, you, it, it was almost a blueprint that if you just had these few pages, you would really understand the scaffolding of the book. Because speaking with the editors, at the end of the book uh, message that you have included, I haven't seen someone include that as well. There's a there's a directness you're bringing to the table that is not common, which I think should be more common and will have to be more common uh, in upcoming time to be able to connect with the reader because the further the gap between what's being said and what's actually in reality, the less the individual can connect with the book. So like, this is not what's happening. But if you're actually showcasing this is even behind the writing process or what actually behind a company, then you as the reader think, okay, I'm getting the insight versus I'm being bamboozled here as, as a reader. That's a cool feature. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there were some people, my mother included, who wished that the email that I include at the very end of the book, which is, um, again, I, I write from the perspective of a corporate consultant and, at the, and in the last chapter I mentioned, you know, another threat potentially to the corporation is that more and more people begin to understand this playbook. And in that spirit, I'm attaching a manuscript um, or, or, or an email that we, we've, we've received. So again, this kind of mysterious passive voice that we've received, we don't know who sent it to us um, or, or how we obtained it, uh, that, that has, you know, a manuscript that we worry about i.e. this is the book, you know, it's a, it's a kind of meta conclusion. Um, and then the, the email that is at the very end of the book is actually then um, the email that I actually sent to my editor um, in when I had finished the, the what it became the, the sort of final draft of the book. Um, and he opened, you know, he read that email and then the attachment, and then he would have read the, the manuscript and, and found out that there was an email. Do you know the email was also part of the, the manuscript? It, so it became a game more with myself, I'd say, than anyone else. But um, as I was mentioning, my mother and other people um, like her really wish that was up front because it kind of explains uh, the, the premise of the book, my own motivations for writing the book. But it, I really didn't see a way to do that. I, I, it really had to come at the end. And I will say that most people don't finish nonfiction. And I felt like um, I felt like that might be a disadvantage because then they wouldn't read the email. On the other hand, if they did, they might really kind of enjoy the ending. It might be very satisfying. So I don't know what your own experience with it was. But um, as I say, the, the book, you know, when you say, oh, it's a departure from your previous book or um, maybe even other forms of nonfiction that you've been reading, for me, that was that was key because I really wanted to have fun while writing about a topic that is not fun at all, not funny, not lightweight. Um, that is by all by all accounts an incredibly important, serious, threatening, dark topic. And this was the way that I personally could could deal with that, you know, for five years. Um, and I was hoping that you know it would also help the reader deal with it a little bit better um, because it, it isn't an uplifting book in, in a lot of ways. I mean, this is a dark, a dark side of our culture and society right now um, that the greatest form of knowledge we've ever known, scientific knowledge is really at threat 
um, really threatened by uh, the private sector, by their interests, by money, by greed. And it's been happening for 100 years now. And if we don't figure out how to safeguard scientific knowledge, we may lose it entirely, which is, to me, a devastating prospect. Um, so yeah, it was a, a kind of way of having fun in the midst of what is a very, very serious conversation. It is a very, we'll call it dark category. I, as a reader, <laughs> took it in very, well, I'm kind of uh, tough-natured and sort of comedian-like, so I go with it automatically. I, I assume some individuals might look at it and be like, wait a minute, what? This is this is criminal, I can't, I don't know. But for me, it was speaking to me very, uh, in the way I hear things, so that was a nice feature. I like hard-hitting material in a way. Well, we've had, you know, the Daily Show and the Colbert Report, and we have a long history, the Yes Men, um, who are incredibly inspiring to me um, in the way that they deal with power, right? Um, and, and the kind of um, comedic approach, basically, to what I would argue is shaming, fundamentally. So I thought that um, the book was in that spirit. Of course, it's not, it's not television, it's not improvisation, I'm not Stephen Colbert, but um, there is a, a tradition of this in America that's that's quite um, compelling. I didn't mention earlier, but your previous book is Shame Necessary. And also two things come to mind. One is very interesting on your website. I never had such a notable moment. You go onto one uh, section and then your mouse, wherever you mouse, you go with your mouse, all the fingers are pointing at you. You're like, wait a minute, this is what it feels like whenever something in the collective is shaming you in some way, suddenly it's like, just you, it's all you, and we are all waiting for you to alter. So that was a great, I've never seen that in my life too, so always innovative uh, in different angles. And then- Armin, thank you. I, I feel like you're really getting, you're really getting my work, and, and that was an, an amazing commissioned website. It's a, a, all original code, as you could uh, detect, it seems. It's not like a standard WordPress site. Um, that we built for Is Shame Necessary. It's at ishamenecessary.com. But uh, I love the the work that's that's um, two two graduates of the ITP program at NYU, which is an interactive technology program, uh, and they really were able to capture, I think, like you said, the the kind of feeling of being shamed. Yeah, this is a great level of detail, and also. You, you, you feel it at the moment. That's a nice, how, how often do you feel something from a browser? I don't think it's that often. So that was kind of cool. And one thing you had mentioned earlier, mom, one thing I want to check is what would you say are some of the largest uh, similarities or categories of similarity that she passed on to you that you would say you are continuing or is it personality quality or is it categories of interest if there's any? Who, who from your passed mom, on from to your mom. You? Oh, from my mother. Oh my gosh. Um, I have never been asked that question before. So I think actually, I mean, you know, again, not to exclude anyone here, but uh, a lot of the, a lot of my disposition actually is the result of my father more than my mother, because he, um, he is incredibly short tempered. He is incredibly short attention span. And if you sort of didn't say something that was entertaining, you, and even if you did, um, you could sort of forget about getting his ear. Um, and he always had sort of quips, you know, he, he's himself a constant stream of, of sort of one-liners um, in response to things. 
And so I do feel like um, growing up in that home shaped me um, to some extent. My mother, um, though, is is sort of belongs to this category of, of utter sincerity where, you know, I think she instilled a, a set of values in me that are very much in line with what I laid out at the beginning. She doesn't have an interest in animals, but she highly encouraged mine. Um, but she she ha does have a strong moral compass and a, a strong idea the, uh, of fairness. And so I, I see that uh, she's, she's sort of always bringing up a kind of um, uh, moral of the story. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, so so I, I think maybe that's her, her greatest influence in, in my life and or on this material. But I, I haven't thought about it long and hard enough. That's a cool one. The moral, we can, I can send strong morals from your content. So that part definitely, <laughs> that part definitely, the values are strong and have. You know, I actually don't think they're that crazy though. I think most of us share, you know, this idea that, that the truth will set you free. I mean, this is, this is sort of just fundamental to living in, living in modern society. And so then when you find that the truth is just completely, um, at the whim of moneyed interests, it, it's, it is really jarring. And I think the majority of Americans would really disapprove of this kind of activity by the private sector, you know, basically challenging nutrition research that shows that sugar, you know, shouldn't be consumed in such quantity by teenagers. And then they go after that and they say, well, no, teenagers are responsible because they're, um, they're inactive. It's not the sugar contents of the drink. It's because they don't exercise enough and they get the headlines and they manipulate the media and they, when money can buy you so much access to, um, to media and information, it, it does become hard to, to know the truth. And we are all interested in the truth. And so um, we have to find ways of sort of, again, protecting the truth, which, you know, there's, there's ways in which the truth is not a static thing, but, um, but it's certainly much more dynamic when you allow for companies to enter the conversation with zero guardrails on the conversation. So um, they really are controlling what we hear and um and it's to everyone's disadvantage basically i have a fellow show host whose main goal for all his content is to get toward the truth when he told me that it was very believable it seems like he just wants to through uh, philosophers mostly get towards the truth of our reality one thing that comes to mind Philosophers are good for that. Oh, yeah. Good old Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and uh, Epictetus. <laughs> yeah. I've discussed some of them in a previous talk one time. We, I, I went over nine quotes, three of each of theirs one time. Yeah. Well, and philosophers love language. And, and one thing you can see with the playbook, right, is that the minute you have a kind of frame that we sort of agree on, like a conflict of interest, then the industry will take that frame. And, and sort of move it, yeah, orthogonally to what we had a shared understanding of. So now, if you are a vegetarian writing about the need to reduce meat in the diet, they say, you have a conflict of interest. But the conflict of interest was there for financial conflict of interest because somebody, a doctor had a, had a contract with a pharmaceutical company, and then they were prescribing extra opioids, right? Um, because they had a contract with, uh, let's say, Purdue Pharma. And... But now they've they twist it on us where it's like, oh, well, we don't like conflicts of interest. 
And so then the philosophers say, let's go back to first principles. What is a conflict of interest? How does this, what does that term really mean? And, and going back to the language is helpful, um, but it shows you how easily, you know, if I say, um, uh, in, in the tobacco companies used to call scientists who were worried about the causal nature between smoking and, and cigarettes, publicity hounds. So if the medical doctors stood in front of cameras and said, you know, we're really, what, then they would say, you just want to stand in front of, of the camera, you're a publicity hound. So again, sort of asking yourself, what is a publicity hound? What would that, what kind of definition um, would, would support that? It, does this doctor meet those criteria? Philosophers are really good at, at I think, um, those fundamental questions of language and definition. I have to add in, that's another wonderful section, glossary of terms in the book. Conflict of interest is focused on religious beliefs, volunteering, dietary preferences, and political memberships. Anything to conflate or distract from the original meaning of the term, which was that financial interest may compromise research. It's like a great uh, application. These are all like applied definitions to the terms that are used they're trying to use it the natural way, but this is the altered way that a company might use it. Yeah, I mean, I really tried with with the exception of the email at the end to stick to the consultant point of view. Now, the other way in which that didn't happen was that my editors won in the subtitle of the book. The subtitle sort of gives away that, um, that the book is, you know, satirical, I hope. But uh, since that was its intent, but I prefer just the playbook, you know, just sort of keep no other glimpse uh, at, at what it might be about. But um, but yeah, to your point, the glossary of terms is really written again from that corporate consultant perspective. It's not. And that's why I, I do think that you'll encounter material in the book that you haven't seen before, even though the playbook exists. You know, this is not anything new. I'm not revealing something. You know, some people have said, oh, I'm so worried that a business will actually use this. And I said, they're using it. We don't have to worry. We don't have to worry that they're going to take this and use it. Every PR firm has this playbook. It's just that we haven't, as the public, had access to it. Right. The idea that there is some company out there that would see this book and say, you know what? We've been perfectly clean the whole time and innocent, but with these methods, we can really start profiting here. Check this out, everybody. Yeah, we've got some. Yeah. Maybe we should hire a PR firm. Maybe we should get a, a lawyer. It's like, no, they have all of that. And, and they don't even need to in, in, involve themselves with these details because all of the subcontractors do it for them. And so I think what this book does is try to piece those together in, in terms of this bigger picture, which is that the corporation or the companies, the industries, they remain at the heart of these issues, whether it's asbestos lead and radium at the start of the 20th century or the tobacco companies and pharmaceutical companies at the, in the mid 20th century, or then later in the 20th century, fossil fuel companies. And now in the 21st century, you know, I'm looking at the meat and dairy companies and the way that they're challenging the causal links between their industry and climate change. Um, it, there's, there's something for every season. There's something for every industry. It is a tried and true, uh, and it, it evolves with time, but the foundational arguments that, and the foundational tools have remained the same. Two of them come to mind here. Since you mentioned cl climate, I'll go to that one and then come back to the other one. In the category of climate change and maybe its relation to uh, the meat industry, but climate change in general, what might be some examples of where um, strategy is being used, such as 
university experts being brought in, or what kinds of tactics may be being used that come to mind? Yeah, so when you think about, so um, the, there are four main strategies that I discuss in the book, which is to challenge the problem itself, challenge causation, challenge the policy, um, or, and sorry, and challenge the messenger. So um, when, let's say, Tyson feels under threat because in 2006, the UN publishes for the first time this really comprehensive report on the environmental impacts of livestock production. So this is a, an international report, you know, that gets an enormous amount of attention globally and sort of sets off, sets in motion a series of policies like um, uh, the less heat, uh, less meat, less meat, less heat campaign in Europe that happened just before Copenhagen. Um, then there was the, the Green Party in Germany's proposal for meatless Mondays in Germany and um, a variety of, of sort of push in the private sector in the U.S. We don't have these state level initiatives um, at, occurring at that time, but a kind of recognition that maybe we should reduce the amount of meat in our diet um, to help with climate change. So uh, in response to that, it seems to me that the, the companies uh, did not decide to say we don't believe in climate change um, and we're going to challenge climate change writ large. Now, there is some a little bit of evidence of that, but not it's, it's not their main tactic the way it was with the fossil fuel companies when they were confronted with climate change back in the, the 70s and 80s and, and even prior, where they said we are going to challenge climate change outright. We're going to just deny that it even exists, which is to me, you know, in doing all this research really is the most brazen tactic um, ever taken on by the private sector. I really think the fossil fuel companies will go down as um, the most strategic masterminds uh, of controlling global consciousness, perhaps ever. I mean, they're threatening the planetary existence, the, the future of, of life on Earth, uh, essentially, with these claims. And they were able to control that conversation, again, for decades. but. The meat and dairy companies don't take that position in part because this ex this whole idea that meat and dairy plays into climate change is happening much later, again, 2006, 2009. Instead, what they do is they challenge the causation and they also say, if we are a cause, we are a very small part of the cause relative to other things, relative to transportation, relative to um, to the concrete business or certainly relative to fossil fuels, like focus, keep your focus on fossil fuels. And they hire, um, there, there's a, a guy at the University of California, Davis, named Frank Mitlerner. They, they really hire him to take on this report, the United Nations report, and he proves himself very good at doing so. Prior to this, he really didn't work on, on climate change issues at all. He worked on issues related to, um, uh, related to livestock and, and sort of air quality on farms, but he becomes uh, in his own mind and in the public discourse, a kind of um, climate change expert, which is strange because, again, his PhD is in animal science. He is not a climate expert at all. And he um, he tweets now from the handle greenhouse gas guru. So this suggests, you know, again, to me, that suggests somebody like Michael Mann or James Hansen, right? If you're a greenhouse gas guru, not someone with a PhD in animal science, but he's positioned himself and now he leads this gigantic center at UC Davis. And a lot of their work really is geared at, um, at changing the conversation and uh, really as a defender of meat. I see him as a, as a meat defender, 
Um, and his work is not highly scientific, at least in the environmental area. Um, he's, but he's highly active on Twitter and um, in the media and has been very successful at help shaping the conversation and, and help downplaying the ties between the meat and dairy industry and climate change. And uh, he's heavily funded by that industry. Uh, and even his work in challenging the UN report was, was funded by the Beef Checkoff Program, which is a group, um, basically a trade association for the, the cattle industry. So uh, he's a great example of a, a kind of modern merchant of doubt. Um, we know this phenomenon from, from acid rain and fossil fuels. And now we see it, of course, in, in the meat and dairy industry as well. Academic experts do speak outside of their area of expertise. Um, they'll speak to issues that are more broad than what they work in because the media doesn't often report on this really granular topics of where you're an expert. But certainly when you're funded by industry and you do that, it should raise a red flag because it may mean, again, that you have a genuine conflict of interest. In, in making those remarks, that you might be rewarded financially for the kinds of things that you say. And this is a problem, and it's why I really believe that journalism has to become more responsible in this way and report and disclose, or maybe even exclude um, researchers with financial conflicts of interest from their stories. I kept thinking of obfuscate as the great- Just gonna say obfuscate is a great, is, is a great word for it. Um, it's. It's a kind of um, constant distraction and um, a raising of the complexity of science and a slowing down. So, you know, this has been in the media lately that, oh, it's no longer denial, it's delay. But denial and delay are, are completely intertwined. The whole point of denial is the delay. They, the tobacco companies talk explicitly about a holding strategy. The longer we can buy time, the more money we can make, and they bought 50 years you know, of, of time in, in the case of fossil fuels. And so uh, denial and delay are, are completely intertwined. So if they, if they the, as what's happening with climate, where the science is becoming so clear that now the debates are about the policy, and you can see this in the IRA itself, it's like, oh, well, Manchin's stepping out because of this or that, and you get the policy watered down to such an extent, you get people arguing, oh, is it, a, is, it, is a tax better or are incentives better? And the, unfortunately, that conversation is completely manipulated by industry forces. It is not a genuine democratic conversation. Um, it's certainly not dominated by experts in the field. There's a lot of moneyed interest taking part. And that just buys an enormous amount of time. It's 2022. It's like we should have been, we had the Kyoto Protocol in 97. And the companies worked so hard against this. And now we've lost 25 years of doing something about this problem. If anything, it's gotten worse. There's more infrastructure in place. And it's very, you know, it's just very frustrating to see the way in which democracy has been completely undermined by, by these very powerful, very rich forces that have access to controlling the, the national conversations. Now, one thing I have to mention, two things, one, Little delays in communication might be tactics from the companies to limit our communication because of the truth inside of it. Possibly, who knows, in the background. Maybe that's part of their playbook, very strategic. I have no idea. Now, the other item I was going to mention was that it is something else. Yes, the obfuscation 
Uh, you were speaking on obfuscation. I think it's key that we note when obfuscation is happening, how much is it, is it harder when there's instantaneous communication like on Twitter and elsewhere, as opposed to 30 years ago when it was more like, we're doing something about it and then you won't know until two years later and then you check, oh, they didn't do anything about it. Whereas now it's like immediate and people reading all the words they're putting out. What's the change there? So um, it, it would be nice to think of digital technologies as uh, social forces that might counteract this kind of work. But every bit of evidence seems to point to the exact opposite, that this actually gives the the corporate forces a leg up because they can communicate more quickly um, and have strategies ready for any moment. Um, it's almost impossible to catch them off guard and deploy these, these digital tools. So one example of this, again, to come back to the meat issue because it's something I work on pretty closely, is um, that there's evidence that the um, the the meat industry in response to this thing called the Eat Lancet report, which came out a couple of years ago, it was an international report from Harvard and Stockholm and, and some other groups, uh, an enormous team of, of scientists on it, recommending essentially that we reduce the amount of meat in our diet for the for issues of planetary boundaries, climate change, but also water use, land use, uh, protecting the Amazon, on and on. And in advance of that report, so the industry knew that the report was coming. It was no secret to anybody. This hashtag, you know, goes out on, on Twitter called Yes to Meet. And it's deployed through all sorts of industry allies, friends, mommy bloggers, you know, what, this, this whole network of people that, um, that the industry has on standby. Who are who sort of look, you know, like independent voices. But if you if you knew anything about, you know, you might be sort of skeptical. Um, like, like does this person really spend their whole day like promoting meat on their blog? What a, what a strange activity, right? Um, that that you might say like maybe there's an incentive there to do so. But um, but yeah, it goes out and they they achieve um, they achieve an enormous amount of backlash to the Eat Lancet report. And it was all seated, you know, it was all there, ready to bubble up. The, the hashtag was there when the report's released. And so the report comes out and the, the, you know, the people, the scientists think like, oh, we can't wait to have these conversations. And in the mainstream media, it was one thing. But on, on Twitter and Facebook, again, you had this, uh, this kind of digital backlash already prepared, already seated. And there's almost no example of it, it happening the other way around, right, where the industry is about to do something uh, like undermine um, the most recent rounds of, of climate talks, let's say, in Glasgow. And the, the scientists are prepared there with a team of digital um, uh, uh, concierge people ready to uh, defend the scientific truth. Like, no, this doesn't happen. There's not the money. There aren't the resources. There's not even the strategy because we don't have, you know, sort of PR firms. I don't have a PR firm that works for me when I finish a scientific study to help me get it out into the world. That just doesn't exist. So in every way, the digital space seems seems highly gamed, again, toward, toward money, toward people who can pay to play. And that, unfortunately, comes back to the most powerful, which unfortunately comes back to, you know, extractive industries. Um, it, it, in many cases. A lot of things came to mind there. One of them, I was in Glasgow last year. Shout outs to going to locations and wonderful. And seems like a lot of great intelligence comes from that region. Mm -hmm. Another one is <laughs> that 
the the passion you bring to the the climate change category and what you described about the fossil fuel industry makes a lot of sense because let's say let's say 15 years from now we're all cooking somehow there's going to be somebody to point to like hey i'm cooking that's not funny anymore so it yeah is that is that the level of satisfaction we want i mean i don't want this to be a game of of sort of i told you so or um we have a villain, therefore we can we can sit back. I mean, even all the climate litigation, even if they find uh, the companies guilty of having known and don't and, and having done nothing, this will not make up for any of the wrongdoing because so much now is irreversible. So I don't think this is going to bring the public much satisfaction, but I do hope that it what it can do is stop the delay. Keep it in the ground now. This has gone on long enough. And again, I, I have more hope for that this will work, you know, across, that will allow us to recognize these patterns enough that other industries who may, um, who may start entertaining this kind of uh, playbook may stop in their tracks and say, you know, there's too much liability associated with doing this. We better just let the science do its thing. And it's not that uncommon. You don't see this level of obfuscation in Germany, for instance. There are just stronger social norms in place. It's not that it doesn't exist, but uh, America, it really exists on steroids. And so, you know, there are ways that we can learn from what other countries are doing, better ways of protecting the truth than we are currently, better ways of informing the public. Um, and, you know, I, it's not that I'm super hopeful or it's not that I, I think like, oh, if we just if we just hold the fossil fuel companies accountable, we'll all feel sleep better at night. No. Um, but we have to make some progress, I, again, toward, I think, protecting the, the truth um, and therefore the policy <laughs> that comes as a result of that knowledge. I have an example that comes to mind for a listener who is here to feel it. Let's say someone drove over your leg and now your leg is, uh, has to be amputated and you lost it. And then later they find that person and oh, they're in jail now. It's cool. Okay, great. The response is there. I have no leg anymore. So it's not, you never, I've had this theme that you never actually are able to get the person who cut you off on the freeway, but you can hope to bring in better dynamics on the freeway or adjust where you went or change out because it's once something occurs, it's like you're trying to catch up to what was already there. It's like chasing your shadow. You can't win. Yeah. So I just um, had the great pleasure of listening to the book Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe, um, all about Purdue Pharma and the, the dynasty, the family behind it. And um, to your point about like, oh, maybe someone was um, was meddling with our Internet connection. It, it's hard not to sound conspiratorial because even Patrick Radden Keefe is talking about, you know, was somebody was outside of his home watching him. He can't prove that they were doing that, nor can he prove that it was hired by Purdue Pharma or the Sackler family. In fact, they deny such allegations. But it has this feeling of, you know, of, of sort of um, being unsettled. But in that, in that book, he mentions, you know, this idea that the families of opioid addicts, who especially those whom have overdosed and, and passed away, they really want this opportunity to speak before Congress. Um, and this presumably will have no effect on the ruling. Um, and the, many people make this point throughout throughout the story, like that, okay, you even if you made these remarks, we're not sure what this would do for you. But 
but for them, the individuals, it, it really felt like it had a lot of meaning. And I think that's sort of where we are right now in terms of your, you know, your leg comparison, which is that people really need, they're feeling a lot of depression and, and fear, I think, over the climate situation, over many, many aspects of society, but certainly over that. We see that with, with the youth. And this is sort of, I think, again, what Greta brought to brought to the fore, which is that young people especially feel sort of locked into a scenario that really doesn't look great for them. And I, I put myself in that category as well, even though I'm, you know, sort of middle-aged at this point. But the, um, the thing is that in the face of that tragedy, I still think a lot of us are looking for a way to express our anger and frustration at not having done anything. And so, you know, like you say, it's not just that the dynamics on the highway might be improved. It's that this collective expression of anger is cathartic in some way, that it's not going to bring our, our planet back. It's not going to bring the ice sheets back. But it is going to, I think, insulate us in some way from this happening again and again and again, which is sort of what the parents wanted to say. Like, you should not embark upon something like this lightly. You should not mess with people in this way, that, that they're trying to reinforce a kind of collective moral standard. And that, I think, is really important as a society to just to, to participate in this kind of thing. Um, so that's... What, that's in part how I see the climate litigation. It's not just like, oh, we want these punitive damages, like for Alex Jones, or like we want to bankrupt these companies. That would be nice. But we want, especially, and Alex Jones is a great case of this, is to express our condemnation. Um, that's really what the, the family of Sandy Hook, they wanted to take away that, that kind of, um, the, the existence, the, the moral existence of, of his claims. And I think that's what we're doing here, too. It's not just a kind of, it's a, it's, it is a performance, but it's a really important kind of performance. It's almost like, let's say someone, that, back to that leg example, they drove over your leg, and somehow, for the time being, them or their crew convinced people that that was the right thing, yeah. and you were in the wrong place, and something that makes it, now you have like a double loss. I lost my leg, plus I'm like in the wrong yes. for being in public walking or something. So. That's not a exactly enjoy, like the world. That's how it feels. Yes. Well, it feels a lot like a crazy making. I mean, I feel really feel for the parents at, at Sandy Hook. It's like it's not enough that you lost your most precious individual, you know, probably the, the individuals that met, meant most to you in this world. But then you are told it's a hoax. And that is a whole other kind of assault. It's like all over again. They have to um, feel a kind of madness. So um, I think that, it, you know, I don't want to take anything away by making that comparison across fossil fuels, but I am suggesting that it's not bad enough, you know, that we are, are going to suffer the effects of climate change. But then we're, we also had to suffer 30 years of being told it, they weren't happening when everyone who was independently minded, you know, statistically everyone agreed that they were. And so, um, so I do think we're, we find ourselves in this kind of need for a collective expression of of anger there's a lot to it like you look at the sky and you think it's blue and then somebody keeps telling you it's yellow and you're like no no just it's blue well unfortunately i mean it really it, it really wasn't like that i mean it, you basically had to trust 
the experts or you or you had to not. I mean, if it would have been nice if we could all look at the sky and say it was blue. But unfortunately, it was that we had to trust this the scientific apparatus, which were climate scientists who were telling us, like, look, if we keep burning fossil fuels, this is going to happen. And that that abstraction of it allowed, I think, so much interference by by the corporate structures. Um, so so it wasn't just uh, it. But but I think but then I, I think it became a, a time, you know, when when it became obvious, like just through photographs of changes in, in glaciers and that that it was like, no, now this denial, you know, they say in the early 80s, we could actually observe these trends rather than them just being predicted. And now, as we're talking about, like individuals can can even notice them. So so it's particularly crazy making, I think, in 2022. One separate category I wanted to include, which was important, is in the agriculture industry. I had talked before with Carrie Gillum about her oh. book, The Monsanto Papers. And then you had mentioned and cited many times her previous book, Whitewash, which is in the same category of material. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you speak a little bit on maybe a method or two that has been used to uh, counter any efforts to showcase what glyphosate may do in the agricultural industry. Yeah, so um, agrochemicals are are pretty dirty sector, honestly. By the, the the terms that they play with are just pretty nasty. You know, you see, especially in um, in South America, these companies really take a lot of liberties. When they when we talk about intimidating scientists, you know, they'll actually raid their offices. Um, they'll confront activists or, you know, through third parties in, in ways that are incredibly intimidating um, and that you don't often see in, in other industries. So they, so each industry does have sort of like it's maybe its limits that it'll be going, willing to go to. And the agrochemicals might have the most generous of limits, let's say, um, or egregious limits. And so it is a it is a really wild to work, I think, in that in that area. And uh, Carrie, of course, knows Monsanto inside and out. But the example that I focus on in the book and actually um, had Tyrone Hayes at NYU along with Carrie Gillum to, to talk about um, some of these topics and the way that they cross over. I also had a, a, another um, uh, activist come named Kurt Davies. So Tyrone was the scientist uh, Tyrone Hayes, Carrie Gillum was the journalist and Kurt Davies was the activist to look at their kind of shared experiences and uh, and, the, and the knowledge that they had. And Tyrone Hayes is the only one who had really, oh, well, I shouldn't say that. Tyrone Hayes and Carrie Gillum had been, have been targeted by industry. Um, they have been victims of of industry backlash in ways that Kurt Davies just hasn't experienced, which I thought was so interesting because he works on fossil fuels and you'd think that he would have experienced such a thing and he just he just had not. But um, as you probably know, uh, when Carrie Gillum's first book, Whitewash, was about to come out, uh, Monsanto hired a, a PR firm to create um, negative book reviews, uh, undermine public appearances of hers. And they had a whole timeline that she wound up getting a hold of, of ways in which to go after her her work. And, you know, what's great about that and why I think her experience was a little bit um, uh, 
whitewashed compared to Tyrone Hayes is that she she sort of knew about this and was prepared for it because she is a journalist and she gets leaked these documents. And so I don't think she was um, as sort of again, it wasn't it wasn't as maddening as it would have been had she not known. And with Tyrone Hayes, you know, this his whole story happens in the early 2000s when he finds and, and he works on the on the chemical. Um, uh, I'm blanking right now. It's so crazy. An atrazine ma- manufactured at the time by Syngenta. And he he decides that atrazine, he observes that atrazine is having an effect on frogs. It's actually winding, it's an endocrine disruptor, disruptor. And he wants to publish this data and the company is not allowing him to. And this is, this is sort of affecting him because he is a scientist and he's seeking the truth. And he says, well, of course I have to publish this data. This is what's happening. And they say, well, well, no, you can't publish it, that we own this data. So he decides in a moment of, I think, like true scientific integrity, that he will rerun the experiments on his own money and publish the data, the results that way. And he does this and the company goes after him in no lightweight way. I mean, this has been covered now by Mother Jones and the New Yorker. And um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of evidence here um, that came out during actually discovery for a different trial. And they go after him in, in a very strategic way and in very, I think, dark way in that they talk about investigating his wife. They follow him at conferences. They heckle him. They send him incendiary emails. But he does everything. He is not going to back down. And that's what's incredible is I think so many people in his position would have would have said, I'm not working on this issue anymore. But he doubles down. And that's how we sort of know what we know about what the industry was willing to do. But again, this is all in the case of agrochemicals. I mean, and, and he sounded sort of paranoid to his students. I've spoke to his students. They said, you know, we thought Tyrone was like a little bit out there, like, like, let us just do the work. Don't talk to us about these social forces. And then these documents come out that show, no, they were doing all of this and more. And his paranoia was completely legitimized by the and and the thing is that we don't have we don't have this kind of evidence for so many people it just happens that we have it for tyrone because it came out during discovery in in this other trial as i mentioned but in many cases you know scientists are saying oh i i think somebody is you know interfering with me this way or i'm getting trolled by this person but we don't actually know you know who's behind that and so in these cases um uh, in Kerry Gillum and Tyrone's cases, we see the agrochemical companies really pulling off the gloves. I mean, they're they're fighting dirty um, in in ways against these individuals. They're no longer just challenging the problem or the causation. They are going after the messengers. And when I've taught this work, um, those stories resonate most with my students, actually, when the corporations go after specific individuals that offends them more than them going after the truth. Or you can feel it like the person is going after you and how would I respond with my human instinct? Yes, exactly. There's something nice to being fearless. It's almost a requirement to make any sort of change or have a strong response is to have some level of fearlessness or else you will be, uh, you will cut yourself off at some point based on some tactic used against you. Oh, I'm too fearful. And I have to quit. That's the goal. I have this idea. Go ahead. 
Well, I, I just thought the, the, so you have to think about what science is. This, this slow, deliberate process that attracts hundreds, thousands of people willing to work in this very refined, slow, experimental, deliberate test, retest, consider the alternative hypothesis, apolitical way. They have to write apolitically. They have to, they have to base their arguments on empiricism. It has to be reproducible. It has to be reproducible. They have to have a dispassionate tone. And then you're reading what's happening and you're, and you're making this conclusion, like scientists have to be fearless. And that's just not who has been attracted to science. People who are who are not, it, that's not the personality type. Now, journalism, that may be more true, and certainly activists. And you see that the industry goes after activists a lot less because they know um, that you go into activism because you're ready, you're ready for a fight. But, um, but scientists are not ready for this. And so you often hear uh, that sci you know, scientists getting the blame, like, oh, if climate scientists were more fearless or if they could communicate better, or if they had been better prepared. But there's nothing about the scientific structure and the, the kind of personalities attracted to it that would be prepared for what would happen with climate change um, or any other science. You know, even that, that's even true. Expertise changes, so the kind of expertise needed in various things. And medical doctors, right, were, were really the experts when we were talking about cancer and cigarettes, for example. And they also, you know, I don't think we're, we're really ready for the kind of backlash that could. And, and in reading these accounts, like this guy, Herbert Needleman, who worked on lead, and the lead industry called into question his, his scientific integrity, made, him have, made the university hold him to a hearing. I mean, they really, they really go after scientists in ways that that I can understand. The scientists are completely unprepared for, and that can be very psychologically destructive to these individuals. And that, and this winds up having this thing called the chilling effect. So it's not only that those individuals um, don't want to work on the issue anymore, but that their students and others who see this going on say, "I don't want to work on glyphosate. I don't want to work on climate change. I want to work on a topic." Um, that is completely that where there are no stakeholders involved, because I don't want I want to do science. I don't want to do politics. And unfortunately, the the forces, the social forces that have made science political, are industrial ones. They're not, you know. There's of course there are these issues of crazy people like Andrew Wakefield and vaccine denial, but for the most part, this is coming from the private sector, motivated by making money. Makes sense. It's like having a bunch of accountants and saying, now it's time to do kickboxing. Uh, this is not really what we signed up for exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> it's kickboxing day. That's funny. That's true. <laughs> right. The category doesn't, it's not like doing biochemistry, like part of the personality base for that is fearless individuals who are ready to titrate uh, substances. It's not, they're not linked. But Tyrone Hayes is a perfect example of someone that they did not, they didn't bargain for. So they, you know, they go after him because they expect him to have that scientific disposition and he doesn't have it. He is a fighter for all sorts of reasons in his personal history, I think. And, and also the fact that he's just a very special individual. And uh, I find him so, so admirable 
for those reasons, because he decides, you know what, I, he becomes a, a kind of superhero for science. Um, and, and in ways the, you know, they just went up, they went up the wrong tree with Tyrone Hayes. And, um, and I think he's sort of almost untouchable at this point because of, because of everything that's happened. Also, I've always had this theme that the most notable individuals, they are great in one category, but they also have some sort of reach out to another category that they bring in. Like it's a athlete, but they were also great at short clips online or something that made them super popular or someone that was in the, I guess, accounting space. But now they also had a little bit of a, they had a real estate license. And because of that, now they're the head of the whole field in Oregon or something. It's like that little link that give them a little boost versus if they were just in their field, they couldn't, yes. they couldn't reach. I don't know. I've always had that theme. Yeah. Well, and in this case, it's interesting because they really pushed him into that position. He would have, I think, been happy in the lab doing his work. But when they said you can't publish or you need to rerun the experiments or, you know, we don't trust your statistics, he started feeling like, what, what's going on here? You know, I thought we were both on the same team. I thought we were interested in finding out, in finding new knowledge. And then he, they sort of put him in that position of actually having to fight back. I have to say a lot of poignancy is expressed through her descriptions and what you're saying. We must have Jennifer Jaquette back on, Jaquette back on in the future. But for this episode, what is one thing you would want all individuals to take away from your book, The Playbook? So the corporate consultant in me wants everyone to understand that scientific denial is just part of business operations. It's impersonal. It is not meant to be, you know, um, seen as nefarious. It's just meant to be seen as doing what corporations do, maximizing profit. We are moving jobs offshore, not because we're terrible, a terrible company, but because it saves us money. This is in the, all in the name of efficiency, wealth generation, and capitalism. The real me, not my alter ego, says, are we happy with this arrangement? Is this what we want out of our biggest and richest institutions? Is this how we want them to think? And I also really, the book is in a way a dedication to, to science and scientists and this form of knowing and a kind of um, recognition of its preciousness and fragility and the need to protect it. And so uh, hopefully through this alter ego, you can decide for yourself whether this treatment of something so precious is something you agree, agree with. That's a great message. Intelligent, captivating, passionate, and realistic. Jennifer, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode of the show, describing a bit from the playbook, bringing us into the background of your past research and giving us some examples of how uh, corporations may use tactics upon us. Thank you for having joined. Thank you for having read so closely. Too. And we are out.